What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. And here's what is coming up on The Exchange. Bullard spooking the bulls a bit. Stocks off the lows but under pressure today. The St. Louis Fed president says there is still a long way to go to get inflation under control. We're going to look at the impact of rising rates on the economy, including the value of your home builders. They're cutting back on new projects. The former Zillow CEO Spencer Raskoff is here. While rising rates are hurting housing, rising prices are crushing restaurants. The CEO of the great Dickie's Barbecue is here on how inflation is hitting nearly every aspect of her business. Hey, all you restaurant owners out there, you're going to want to watch that one. All right, so get that brisket ready. But first, why don't we fire up the old market grill and get the Dom Chew with our numbers. I said they're spooking the bulls, and now the market's in the green I'm always wrong. Not exactly cooking with gas, so to speak, Thanks right now. But, but, but we are cooking because this is the high of the session. If you look at the Dow Industrials, up 33 points is modest. It's not really anything to write home about. But when you consider the idea that we were down 314 points at the lows of the session, that's quite a comeback. So, again, highs of the session, up about one-tenth of one percent. It's not a lot, but it's still way better than it was at one point earlier today. That narrative shifting for the S&P 500 as well, down only one quarter of 1%, nine points, 39.49 the last trade there. The Nasdaq Composite just about flat on the session, 11,184. Again, modest moves, but considering where we had been on some of those comments from Fed speakers like St. Louis's James Bullard, maybe kind of giving a little bit of a scare to the markets there overall. One place where you are seeing a more market effect of some of those more hawkish comments from Fed speakers and concerns about the economy is in oil prices, which continue to be under pressure near term right now. U.S. benchmark West Texas Intermediate WTI crude $81.89. That's down about 4% right now. You can kind of see this near-term downtrend that we've seen for quite some time still drifting lower. We're trying to try to see if we get some of those lows that we saw earlier this fall. Again, $81.96 for crude. Other places to watch for as well in terms of specific themes and stock stories, a couple of big retail winners on earnings, Bath & Body Works and Macy's. Bath & Body Works, by the way, an S&P 500 company, far and away the best performer up 25% after the bell yesterday, better than expected results, and they upped their forecast. Macy's earlier this morning, not in the S&P, but a big department store name, up 14%. Same thing, beat bottom line, top line, and raised the forecast. Those names are big. And the single worst performer in the S&P 500 so far today is also consumer discretionary. It's Norwegian Cruise Lines. After it gets double downgraded from the equivalent of a buy rating to an outright sell, it goes from outperform to underperform at Credit Suisse. The target price goes to $14 from 20. Shares right now down about 6%, $16.54. Those analysts at Credit Suisse, Brian, think that there could be some downside risk given their outperformance over other cruise line operators. They think Royal Caribbean's a better value play at this point. I'll send things back over to you. The old double downgrade. Tom Chu, thank you very much. All right, interest rates, they are on the move lately. This after Fed President James Bullard says the S word. No, not that word. He said seven. The Fed may need to go as high as 7% to control inflation. 
All this, by the way, is some bond spreads post some of their biggest moves, their widest moves in 40 years. Rick Santelli is at the CME with more. Seven? I mean, Bullard? How does he rank on the Santelli you know, list of who I'm listening to with the Fed? You know what? Uh, I, I think he ranks that we like to listen to James Bullard. Uh, and James Bullard historically has a lot to say. The real question is, if you parsed all the different comments he's made over the years, how accurate has he been? Well, I can tell you this. If you go in reverse order, he's been pretty accurate lately with regard to inflation not being transitory. But many of the, his other comments were not exactly as spot on. And the word may, M-A-Y, uh, well, it may happen, it may not happen. You may win the lotto, you may not win the lotto. Listen, he's on the Fed, he's not going to vote next year. All I can tell you is there's a lot of moving pieces here. First piece, 1,526,000. Those were continuing claims today, Brian. Look at the chart. They haven't been that high since March 25th. And if you look at a week to date of 10-year yields, you can clearly see that James Bullard's comments did pop us up today. But in the context of the week, they sort of fell flat. And if you look at what the 10-year looks like from a macro perspective from October 1st, considering that it was, what, October 24th, right in that area, we made our high cycle yield close at 4.24%. It certainly looks like the market has turned. And James Bullard's comments aside, it doesn't make much difference to the formation of that chart. And on those spreads, yes, it is off to the races and not in a good way. Minus 69 on twos to tens, haven't closed there since 1982. And even we, though we've had some relief, Brian, on the recession spread, three months to tens, yesterday it closed at minus 52. Today it's probably around minus 47, minus 48. Nonetheless, it's still levels that we haven't seen in 15 and a half years. Back to you. Well, no, we're not done yet, Rick, because I'll, I'll see your 15 and a half years and maybe raise you a 40 years. Because if you look at the spreads between the two-year and the 10-year and the three-month and the 10-year and sort of the difference between those, I mean, I'm going deep in the bond weeds here, I can see numbers that we have not seen in 40 years. What is that telling us? In plain English, what does that mean? In plain English, it means things like T-bills that are auctioned pretty much Monday and Tuesday of every week along with some cash management bills they're in real time, meaning as the Fed continues to raise rates, remember, meetings are six, seven weeks apart. It's not as though we're raising two meetings down the road. You take it in chronological order, and that's just like T-bills. As these auctions come up, they keep moving higher. Uh, this week, we had bills in the 4.35% area. So the two-year note is further down the curve, and it's going to be a little bit more squishy. The further down the curve you go, the more variety of signals and effects and investor preferences get involved in where that interest rate ends up, meaning you know, a two-year is going to have a little less buying potential by overseas investors or people that know that Tina is over. There is an alternative now to stocks. It's called the uh, treasury market. You, if you can get over 4% on a T-bill, do you really need to take a chance at equities? 
But as the further you move down the curve, mm. the more buying you are seeing. So 10s, 20s, 30s, their yields are actually a bit lower than a two-year. There's your inversion. And I think that dynamic will continue because what ultimately happens is the T-bills will follow the Fed tightening. The rest of the further down the curve is going to look at the effects on the economy. And we already see that Fed fund futures next year are putting in a couple of eases towards the end of the year as yeah. prices on Fed fund futures start to move up. And that's what the long end and that's the distortion in the long end and even in a two year, which isn't a long end instrument, but it is when you compare it to a three month bill. I feel like 4% is the new 10%. Rick Santelli always giving us 100%. Rick, thank you. All right, so with the Federal Reserve unlikely to back down on rate hikes, at least according to Bullard, did the market once again get ahead of itself? Your next guess says the answer may be yeah in the short term, but also says we are getting closer to a bottom. What does it all mean? Let's ask Chris Crisanti. He is the chief equity strategist, senior portfolio manager at MAI Capital Management. There will be a day, and I want to I want to promise our viewers, and I rarely do this because it's hard to keep promises all the time, Chris. There will be a day where we do not utter the words Federal Reserve all day long <laughs> on CNBC. That day is not today. How closely are you, li- or tomorrow, or the next day, how closely do you listen to bull- every day a new speaker? Oh, I think you've put your finger on it, Brian. It's nice to be with you again. Uh, I, I think if I could have the answer to any one question, it would be how, you know, how high are rates going to go? Having said that, I, I do think in six months, you and I won't be talking about inflation nearly as much as we're going to be talking about recession, unemployment. So, so that statistical focus will, will change in, in an important way. Having said that, you know, the most important thing for investors to remember is that the market is not the economy. Uh, I think there's a good case to be made if the Federal Reserve doesn't go much further than five or five and a quarter, that, that we're kind of bottoming around the September 30 lows. And, and let me give you the two reasons I, I think that. First of all, the market leaders, the big tech stocks, FANG stocks, have, have really finally given up the ghost. And you needed to see that in order for the market to really set a bottom. But the second thing is those stocks, Amazon, Apple, not Apple, but Amazon, Google, uh, Microsoft, uh, Meta, they've all hit lows in the last six weeks, but the market hasn't. The market is a bunch of different sectors and industries and companies that have been setting lows for the last six months or so. Costco set a low in May, is up 25% since then. General Motors set a low in July. My favorite is the the home builders, which everybody hates. They set a low in June, and they're up almost 20% since that low. So underneath the surface, there's some foundations being built for the next leg upwards. And I'm I'm not saying that leg upwards is coming anytime soon. But I am saying that there, this looks like a bottom setting if we're not too far off base with our consensus picks on the Federal Reserve rate hikes. Okay. Well, I do want to say I hope you're wrong, Chris. I mean that politely because I don't want to be talking about recessions or layoffs in six months because that's, that's a lot more depressing than talking about the Federal Reserve as annoying as that is. Taiwan Semi, I see, is one of your picks. That's an interesting name. I mean, you've got the issues between China and Taiwan, a lot of real risk growing there. You've got growing investments through the Inflation Reduction Act and others, CHIPS Act in the United States to build out our capacity. That would seem to be a negative for TSM. You clearly don't think so. Sure. Well, clearly the geopolitical risk is real. 
we just feel like it's five years or more off into the future. And, and we think anything in the next two or three or four years is likely to not involve a, a fighting war with Taiwan. The CHIPS Act actually could support Taiwan Semi as they build plants, for example, in Arizona. So what we like about Taiwan Semi, the whole semiconductor space actually, reminds me of energy maybe two years ago when it was left for dead and folks just said, you know, don't go there, it's just too dangerous. Taiwan Semi is the most advanced semiconductor manufacturer in the world. Mm -hmm. Warren Buffett just announced on Monday that, that he's getting in. As you know, I've been mentioning it here for several months. You know, I think they're irreplaceable. I love buying the best company in an industry that's so out of favor. There you go. And it, it is, it's, it's a little less out of favor. It's popped a little bit off its low, but overall, the, sure, the chart true. is ugly. Amazon, TSM, Chris Grisanti, thank you very much. Have a good day. All right, we are just getting started. Coming up, $2 billion. That is the daily estimated loss our economy could face if rail workers go on strike next month. So how close are we to a deal or a total derailment? Plus, from red hot to ice cold, how much soaring borrowing costs are starting to slam real estate? Stressed about pests? When you have pest problems, don't call just anyone. Call the Orkin Pro. For more than 120 years, Orkin offers unparalleled service, helping protect homes and businesses from termites, rodents, mosquitoes, and other insects. With Orkin by your side, you don't have to wonder about the outcome of your pest problem. We'll solve it guaranteed. And if bugs creep up between services, we'll be on your doorstep free of charge. Orkin, the best in pests. Learn more at orkin.com. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. All right, welcome back to The Exchange. This is probably the biggest economic story that is happening right now that you may not have heard a lot about. Till now, threat of a strike for nearly all railroads in America. This after a third union rejected the tentative contract brokered by the Biden administration. The largest two unions representing rail workers have yet to vote on the deal. But the nation's entire rail system would be derailed if even one union decided to strike. The first union to reject the proposal was set to end negotiations this Saturday, but they have pushed the bargaining back, a cooling-off period, if you will, meaning a strike, though, could occur still as early as December 5th if a deal is not reached or if they don't extend the cooling-off period. If there is a strike, it could have catastrophic consequences on America's supply chains and is estimated to cost the American economy $2 billion a day. That's probably low Joining us now to talk about the latest developments, Ian Jeffries, president and CEO of the Association of American Railroads. I, I'm shocked this story's not getting a little more national attention, given that, and I don't think this is high, TV hyperbole. I mean, the rails stop working, the American economy shuts off. Well, that's right? exactly right. Absolutely. First of all, thanks for having me today. Uh, that's why we're going to see that $2 billion a day economic impact uh, estimated. But we're not there yet. 
we have seven of our 12 unions that have fully ratified their contracts. We have the two largest unions are out for ratification. Those numbers will come in Monday. And we have three that we still have some work to do. But uh, cooling off uh, goes into December, and we'll be working to, to find a path forward there. Why are there 12 unions? Well, there's a long history in the railroad industry, over long, 150 long industry. years. Yeah. You got it. And that's so you've got to deal with all 12. Mm -hmm. And why do all 12 have to ratify? What if nine out of 12, 10, then what? Well, historically, uh, even if one or two don't ratify, um, other unions will honor a lawful picket. And so uh, it's critical that we get all 12 across the finish line. And that's what we're working towards. So, some, some of these unions are, as I understand it, are much larger than others. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The smallest union is like a couple hundred right. people. Is that true? Right, right. So what were to happen if the smallest union said no and the other 11 said yes? Well, we would still have some work to do and we would need to find a path forward with that smallest union because we aren't finished until we have agreements with 12 out of 12. We're, we're happy we have a majority fully ratified. Uh, we've got a pattern in place there and we're, we're looking forward to the results on Monday with our two largest. Okay. You see it on the graphic there, not you, but our viewers demanding 56, I think, days of paid time off, sick leave. From what I understand it, talking to my colleague, Lorianne LaRocco, who knows a lot more about this than I do, how much of this is literally coming down to how many days off or sick days they get? Well, I think we need to back up to how we got the tentative agreements. Uh, President Biden appointed a board of three independent arbitrators that the, the unions and railroads both made their proposals to, what they thought an agreement should look like. That board uh, took all the information and developed a comprehensive framework, the result of which is the highest wage increase in 50 years, uh, continuation of best-in-class health care with some of the lowest employee cost sharing of any industry, and um, some, some other opportunities to, to create more scheduled work. So what's the pay increase? 24%. That seems pretty good. That's good. It's historically high. And it's a lot higher than... A lot. Now, when's the last time they got a major pay increase, though? I guess that, that's a big part of the 24%. Right, right. Well, we've been negotiating for uh, almost three years, and so any employee, once a contract's ratified, uh, average employee will get a check for $16,000 in back pay. and They then, will get the back pay. Absolutely, yes. Okay. Our employees, uh, average wages and benefits with this deal, $160,000 a year, and we're in the top 7% uh, when it comes to compensation across every sector in the U.S. I can't speak for the unions, obviously, and they probably all have their different views, but, okay, that deal seems pretty good mm -hmm. from a pay perspective. Uh, you're ne negotiating over time off, paid sick leave, things like this. But if I was a union, I would imagine I've got a lot of leverage right now. The American, I know the American economy mm -hmm. needs me, and I have a pro-labor administration. Right, right. Well, what's the problem? Absolutely, America needs our workers. Uh, they come to work every day, 24-7, and do an outstanding job moving freight and moving it safely. They are, the, they are the blood vessels, them and the truckers, of the U.S. economy. You're exactly right. 40% of inner-city freight moves on uh, freight rail. So... Um, that's why it's important that we find a path forward, get these deals ratified, and that's why I'm happy we have seven of our 12 that already Okay, have. so the, there was a cooling off period. Mm -hmm. uh, how many more could you have? I mean, it, let's say this goes into January. Could we expect the rails to keep operating and you just kind of keep extending the cooling off period? Or they said that this is a hard out, no more extensions. Well, I think we're, we're all to the point where it's important we get deals done so our employees can get the compensation they deserve and are, are due. And so that's the goal right now. Could Congress come in uh, with a hammer and well, force things? 
Congress is certainly engaged on this, and historically, uh, I'll say the, the law we operate under has been very good at avoiding a work stoppage. It's been 30 years. Last time uh, we did have a work stoppage, Congress moved in 24 hours bipartisanly to stop it and implement uh, the well, PEB's framework. We're, we're hoping you guys can get something done, hoping it's good for everybody when you do get it done. America needs the rails. And by the way, transit is cool. I agree. Just like mile-long trains hauling stuff, just super cool. Doesn't get more American than that. It does not. Ian Jeffries, thank you very much. I got the conjunction junction thing in my head <laughs> with the guy. And he's anyway, still ahead. If you thought the FTX Sam Bankman Freed story could not get any more bizarre, you are wrong. Some new news and comments that are going to make your head spin. Plus, an exclusive interview with the finance executive behind the due diligence on the FTX deal. And later on, how much more is that delicious barbecue going to cost you? The CEO of Dickie's Barbecue Pit is here. And by the way, we're starting to get some headlines from General Motors Investors Day. CEO Mary Barra saying GM EVs will be profitable by 2025, three years from now. We're back in two minutes. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. All right, welcome back. Healthcare has been one of the top three sectors this year. It has outperformed the broader market, but of course, like all sectors, not all areas within healthcare are created equal. We're going to do this. It's called sectornomics. I call it double doming. We're doubling dom on healthcare. That was terrible. Take it away. All right. So here's what we got because healthcare is important. The reason why is not because of the work that they do, although it's very important. It's also important to the markets because healthcare is the second biggest sector in the S&P 500, second only to technology. That's how important it is. It carries a lot of weight. Now, over the course of the last year, we've seen a lot of outperformance from that healthcare industry side of things. That white line has been getting further above the orange line, the broader S&P 500, as the year has progressed. Now, within that healthcare overall sector, there are key component industries that have driven that outperformance. It's been biotech specifically that's handled a lot of the upside momentum and work there. Biotech within that industry group is up 12%. Healthcare providers and services up about 4%. And pharmaceuticals, big pharma, drug companies up about 2%. Meanwhile, it's been hardware makers, diagnostic, medical equipment companies that have been the real underperformers down around 26% during that time span. Now, if you're looking for which stocks that have perhaps been beaten down a little bit more that could have potential upside, according to data from FactSet, these three companies have amongst the biggest upside potentials if you believe sell-side analyst target prices. They are Zoetis on the animal sciences side of things with a 32% implied upside, Biorad and Catalan 35 and 42% upside for sure. But again, much of this is because the stocks have been so beaten up that maybe the analysts haven't caught up yet. But if they are correct as of right now, those three stocks could have significant upside. And Bri, if you take a look at the overall picture for healthcare, it is one where it had been kind of a little bit of a laggard for quite some time. 
Maybe this outperformance is that catch-up. We'll see what happens. But again, the second biggest weighting in the S&P 500. I'll send things back over to you. Great stuff. A lot of upside there. We'll see if you believe it. All right, Dom, thank you. Now to Tyler Matheson for a CNBC News update. Brian, thank you very much. Here's what's happening at this hour. Nancy Pelosi will soon step down as Speaker of the House. President Biden calls her the most consequential Speaker of the House in our history. She will remain a member of Congress, but she will step away from Democratic leadership in the House. She says it's time now for younger leaders to step up. With great confidence in our caucus, I will not seek re-election to Democratic leadership in the next Congress. For me, the hours come for a new generation to lead the Democratic caucus that I so deeply respect. And I'm grateful that so many are ready and willing to shoulder this awesome responsibility. Meantime, Steny Hoyer, the number two Democrat in the House, also saying he will not seek a leadership position in the next Congress. He is backing Representative Hakeem Jeffries to be the new Democratic leader. Well, the top U.N. nuclear watchdog says the new Russian airstrikes are endangering more of Ukraine's nuclear power plants. Two plants lost connection to the power grid this week, and that puts the cooling apparatus there into some risk. Brian, back to you. Oh, wow. Tyler Matheson, thank you very much. All right, still ahead. How far might home prices in your town be ready to fall? The former CEO of Zillow will join us with his insight on real estate and a really razor's edge time for that industry. Stick around. All right, welcome back. If there is one area of the economy that is no doubt taking the brunt of the Fed's tightening cycle, it is housing. And today's data continued to bring the pain. Diana Olick joining us now with the latest on arguably, I think, Diana, the most important part of the U.S. economy, far more than the stock market. Well, absolutely. I mean, who am I to argue with you on that one? Look, home construction just continues to drop. And I'm going to focus here on single family because that's where higher mortgage rates are really hitting. Starts dropped about 6% in October month to month, down nearly 21% year over year. That annual drop is growing fast. And building permits, which are an indicator of future construction, dropped 3.6% for the month, down 22% year over year. Again, those annual declines also getting steeper. And you can see the home building ETF, that's ITB, reacting, seeing its worst week since mid-September. But builders aren't seeing the demand, and now they're having to offer more incentives. 59% reported doing that in November, according to the NAHB, a big jump from September. And that includes paying points on the mortgage, rate buy-downs, also 37% of builders said they cut prices in November, and that's up from 26% in September. The average cut was about 6%. Now, on the brighter side of housing, for consumers at least, sky-high rents are finally starting to cool. They were still up 4.7% in October year over year, but that is the slowest annual increase in a year and a half, according to Realtor.com. It also released a fall survey showing the vast majority of landlords still intend to raise rents in the coming year, but at a much slower pace. And there was also a big jump in the number of tenants, though, who said they were going to look for something cheaper because their rents had gone up. So I wonder how much longer, Brian, those landlords can keep doing that. Well, I think that's going to be the question. And why don't we just extend the conversation and bring in somebody who has been in the thick of the housing boom and bust cycles. He says this is not 2008 all over again, but home prices will continue to fall. Joining us now is Spencer Raskoff, co-founder and chairman of vacation home startup Picasso and former CEO of Zillow. Diana's still with us. Uh, Spencer, when I, when I 
I was perusing Zillow for fun, just poking around neighborhoods in various parts of the country. And I would say, I don't know, 50, very anecdotally, 50% of the homes I looked at had a price cut little sort of banner on yeah. top of them. How, how, how bad do you think this is going to get? So, you know, home values nationwide are going to decline a little bit, but this is not 2008. And the reason is that 2008 was a credit bubble, a mortgage bubble. Millions of people got mortgages that they shouldn't have, and then we had a foreclosure crisis. What you're seeing right now in the market, as Diana just reported so well on, is everyone sort of stuck. So, you know, in this game of musical chairs, the music stopped when the Fed started raising rates. And normally in musical chairs, you're sort of scrambling because a chair is missing. Well, everyone found a chair, but now we're sort of stuck until the music starts again. So if you own a home already, you're stuck because you probably have a two or three percent mortgage. You can't sell and then buy at a seven or eight percent mortgage. So you're kind of stuck. And if you rent, you're stuck because you can't buy because you have no appreciated home equity to trade into a new home. So Nothing's happening. No one's moving because of, of this rapid appreciation in mortgage rates. Well, well, and by the way, I have to correct. I lied to the audience. Diana Olick is no longer with us. She's missing. <laughs> somebody somebody locate Diana. And let me know she's all right. Um, well, that's a lot of stuck. And yeah. how do we get unstuck? Because not only do people have so much money tied up in their homes, there's two other aspects to this that really worry me. Number one. Home equity lines, people that may have tapped that, where do they stand? Number two, because what happens, you know, maybe you don't know the answer to this, Spencer. What happens if my home was worth 200000 more a year ago, I took out 75000 in home equity lines to do some project, and now my home is worth less than my mortgage plus the home equity line? What happens? You should be okay as long as you can keep paying the interest on the HELOC. But I mean, Americans still have 29 trillion of home equity. So again, 2008 was a very different situation where so much equity was wiped out and people were underwater and you had regular foreclosures compounded by strategic foreclosures. A strategic foreclosure is when someone just says, forget it, I'm so far underwater, I'll walk away. And millions of people did that in 2008. That's not happening now because we still do have so much equity because there's been so much appreciation since 2009 yeah. until this this recent and, downturn. And I think that that's an important point you're making. And it kind of I do, unfortunately, I was kind of in the thick of things at 07. Did a special in 07 about subprime. It was called a fear monger. I get it. And, and it was scary at the time. We know what happened. I'm not saying we're there now. I'm not worried about right now, Spencer. I'm worried about six months or a year from now if this trend continues. If it pauses here, the pace yeah. of home declines, we're probably okay. Well, what's, what you have to remember is the limited supply. That's the dynamic that is, is um, kind of the elephant in the room in this housing situation. I mean, and Dana just reported, for example, home starts are down 21% year over year. So we just don't have enough homes out there. There's not enough supply on the listing side because people are locked in a low mortgage rate, so they're not likely to list. There's not much new construction inventory. So what will keep home prices you know, not quite flat, they're going to decline a little bit nationwide, but, we'll, but what will keep them from falling off a cliff is limited supply on the listing yes. side. So what we're really seeing is a decline in transaction volumes. That is declining a lot. Are there enough? Are there enough all? We always forget about the old all cash buyer, which you think, who the heck's buying a house with cash? It's a lot bigger percentage than I ever thought. I saw some data in parts of New Jersey, like 30 percent of all home transactions are all cash. I don't know who these people are. God bless them. The other aspect is, you know, you own your home for 30 years. You bought it for 200000 It was worth $1.2 Now it's worth one. 
Right. You're not going to get everything you wanted, but you're still going to make a lot of money on the home sale. Well, and, and that's what people need to remember. Even even if sides are down 20%, that's still four and a half to five million real estate transactions. So, you know, a lot of the publicly traded prop tech companies have been just completely discarded because real estate is out of favor. But there still are a lot of real estate transactions that are going to happen. They're going to be about 100 billion of real estate agent commissions even in this down market. And so it's just, it's a huge part of GDP and there's still a lot of economic activity around housing, even if it's not as good as it once was a year ago, two years ago, three years ago. Well, we'll just go to uh, Picasso and check out second home ownership. Spencer Raskoff, thank you very much. Appreciate that sobering view. All right, coming up, how's this for a quote? Never have I seen such a complete failure of corporate controls, end quote. That is from the newly appointed FTX CEO and bankruptcy trustee. He is the same guy that oversaw Enron's bankruptcy, and that's what he said about FTX. And by the way, he said a lot of other stuff, and you're going to want to hear it, and you will next. Welcome back. The new CEO of FTX really just there to oversee the bankruptcy, not mincing words about the company, saying... He has never seen such a, quote, complete failure of corporate controls. Now, keep in mind, this is the guy who oversaw the Enron unwind. Get to more on that in a minute. But Kate Rooney just sat down with the finance exec to talk about failed due diligence for its proposed buyout of FTX. He, well, I shouldn't say failed. They didn't fail. They just looked at the books and then they didn't like what they saw. Everybody else apparently failed. What did he see that spooked him? Yeah, Brian, so I I sat down with Binance's chief strategy officer here in Chicago. He essentially said he was shocked at what they saw when they went through uh, FTX's numbers. Reminder, this was a non-binding letter of intent. They said that they were looking to buy this deal or buy this company in earnest. And he told me they had 30 days to do the deal. They got two hours into the diligence process. He said they decided then, within two hours, that the company was beyond saving. When we started to, you know, meet with these teams, which, by the way, it was like a bomb went off in that place. You know, we're getting on calls. People are crying, even though, you know, we were within the first like 12 hours of this crisis for them. You know, their attorney quit within the first two hours of us setting up the data room. So it was complete pandemonium over there. And it was pretty obvious that once, you know, Sam went you know, completely silent on them, the entire organization just fell to pieces. And Brian, Binance was a competitor, but it was also an early investor in FTX. Patrick Hillman, the chief strategy officer, telling me he thought venture capital investors and lawmakers were really drawn in by Sam Bankman-Fried's persona and his appearance of credibility. He did have some harsh comparisons. He compared it to two pretty high-profile financial frauds. I think looking back on this now, one of two things are true. Um, either Sam was completely delusional, which I think was a lot of people think kind of Elizabeth Holmes, you know, it was her mindset, or was so manipulative that he was able to, you know, purposely create this cult of personality around him and do whatever he deemed like a Bernie Madoff. There's no middle ground. It's one of the two. Uh, which one of those two? I don't know. And I think that is really going to, you know, decide whether, you know, these investors were Um, manipulated or negligent. I think it's probably more likely they're being manipulated. And Brian, we did reach out to FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried on those accusations. No comment. 
uh, from the companies. But the former CEO, Sam Bankman-Fried, now saying that he is still looking at financing options despite that company filing for bankruptcy and that process really being underway at this point. This morning, the new CEO, John Ray, uh, out with his own pretty sharp criticism of what happened here at FTX. And as you mentioned, Brian, this is the same John Ray who was in charge of restructuring Enron. He says, quote, never in my career have I seen such a complete failure of corporate controls and such a complete absence of trustworthy financial information as occurred here from compromised systems, integrity and faulty regulatory oversight abroad. He goes on to say to the concentration of control in the hands of a very small group of inexperienced, unsophisticated and potentially compromised individuals. This situation is unprecedented. Unprecedented. He also talks about some of the corporate funds for FTX that were used, he says, to purchase homes and other personal items for FTX employees in the Bahamas, one of the most pervasive failures, as John Ray put it, was the lack of lasting records of decision-making. Bankman-Fried set things on auto-delete and then encouraged employees to do the same. And their corporate audits were done by a firm headquartered in the metaverse, as he put it. John Ray also makes it clear that Sam Bankman-Fried doesn't speak on behalf of the company anymore. He is technically the former CEO, and he does continue to make what Ray calls erratic and misleading public statements. He pointed to his comments to a Vox reporter that were published yesterday. Among those, Sam Bankman-Fried said, essentially, F the regulators, they make everything worse. And John Ray really trying to make it clear here that Sam Bankman-Fried is not a spokesperson for FTX right now. I'd like to talk for the next 20 minutes about this. I doubt the producers will give it to us. Um, There's a (laughs) lot here to unpack. Number one, if you... That Vox article, I posted it to my Twitter. It wasn't really an article as much as it was somebody, I guess, Sam Bankman-Fried thought was his friend, who's also a reporter, who then published a bunch of screenshots in which Sam Bankman-Fried effectively said, and I'm going to completely summarize, my whole public nice guy persona was fake. Um, He's going to clearly throw his girlfriend under the bus. He He basically blamed it on Alameda Research, which means he's going after her. That might be a window in, in illegal strategy, but but Kate, what really caught my ear from the John Ray comments, and okay, and I'm, we we can't speculate, but when you read your quote, they're kind of in the middle, and I posted this as well. He called them quote potentially compromised individuals. I have no idea what he meant by that. I know you don't either, but when I hear the words <laughs> potentially compromised, I'm thinking by whom, how. So one of the things he may be, have been referring to, Brian, is there was what a suspected hack that happened on FTX where about half a billion dollars was moved from that platform. There is, I mean, the Binance chief strategy officer said this was his thought and this was what he thought happened, that uh, either former FTX employees or current FTX employees may have had access and moved some of those funds. That is what a lot of people are pointing to in terms of the idea of these being compromised. But clearly... Sam Bankman-Fried and the FTX employees that were running the show here, in the, the eyes of John Ray, are not equipped to restructure this company and, and bring yet, any sort of money back to shareholders. And, and yet, outside of Binance and maybe others we don't know about, super smart, like Duke MBAs just gave them billions of dollars for institutional investors, not just Duke, I'm just saying, you know, good schools, MBAs. Everybody missed all this stuff. I urge everybody to read that Vox article. I, it was it was just bizarre 
and scary and weird, and now they're being called compromised. There is so much more to come. Kate Rooney, thank you very much. Thanks, Ryan. There's a lot more to come on this story, folks. A lot more. All right. And by the way, all the politicians took money. Give it back. We're going to start tracking that. All right. Up next, likes of Chipotle and McDonald's proving they've got pricing power. What about smaller players like Dickie's Barbecue Pit? We're going to find out. CEO is with us next. Our restaurant stocks overall moved a little higher in the past month. Inflation cooling off a little bit. But what about small businesses? You know, and smaller franchised and, and smaller restaurant chains. Not the McDonald's's or the Chipotle's of the world. Well, Texas-based Dickie's Barbecue Pit says while prices for certain ingredients have begun to ease, it's still had to pare down the menu. Its cost, supply chain, and labor challenges persist. On top, on top of that, consumers still feeling the pinch, and every penny seems to count. Let's Laura Ray Dickey. She is CEO of Dickey's Barbecue Restaurants, which I'm excited soon to have two locations in Manhattan, correct? Yes, we're very excited about that. That's exciting for us, but I've got to imagine that the rents are really high, and that goes into inflation, yes. does it not? Rents and pay are the things that are probably driving up your costs the most. Our cost of goods, our occupancy costs, and our labor costs, absolutely. But the cost of goods, what we've been seeing is really high, but also very erratic. Uh, commodities markets and protein markets and uh, things like bread, tomatoes, all of those things have been very erratic, but they're starting to cool off a little, which is good news. We've seen uh, a reduction in cost, actually, in the proteins market, which for us, being barbecue, is a, a great thing. Our brisket's down about 6% from Q3 to Q4. We're down about 12% in ribs from Q3 to Q4. Chicken prices have uh, stabilized quite a bit. They're down almost 35% from Q3 to Q4. So for us, that's great news. Yeah. But there's a lot of other uh, factors in the market, in particular fuel. The rising fuel costs makes that even though we're seeing that stability in pricing, we're still seeing high end pricing because it costs yeah. so much to get those products to the restaurant. So you've got four things there. You've got rents, labor, mm-hmm. ingredients, and call it transportation. Three of the yes. four mm-hmm. are oh. up and continue to go up. So how does the, how does the food yes. ingredients coming down a little bit? How much does that blunt the impact or do the other three, are they like 90% of all your costs? You know, it's, it's always a balance. And one of the things that we have done to offset that is to stream on our menu. You know, we're 81 years old. We've been in business where I'm standing since 1941. And even though we have over 550 restaurants across the U.S., we still have to take a reduction in our menu that we haven't had to do in 30 or 40 years. In fact, we're we're reducing the number of proteins that we have. We're reducing our specialty sandwiches. We're reducing our limited time products, those types of specialty things that we will do from quarter to quarter every now and then, Uh, just because it's too erratic in the supply chain market to be able to count on price stabilization or to be able to forecast the way that we have been on those limited time items. What do you got to pay somebody these days? You know, cashier. Oh, we are, uh, our cashier is $12.50. is starting all the way up to $15 at our block, our specialty positions that are trained uh, to slice brisket and do those sorts of things. And, and, yeah, and can you find people? No, it's very challenging. 
Uh, we have great people. Uh, we've certainly gotten very creative where we're opening yeah. restaurants with half the number of folks. Uh, we're running shifts with half the number of folks. Uh, we've also had to get really creative with scheduling. Certainly something that we've seen that's been interesting is more folks are needing creative scheduling where you might have um, one person that's staying home with the kids as opposed to um, you know yeah. maybe having two folks in a household work. So they need a lot of creative and flexibility in scheduling. Yeah. So and it's it, certainly child, an evolve or fail situation. Child care is just such a problem that not enough are talking about. Lorraine yeah. Dickey, good luck. Look forward to seeing you in New York City. I know you're in Brooklyn, but Thank you. welcome yeah. to Manhattan. We're going to do a... We appreciate it. We'll do a real power lunch but that's the next oh, show lower rate that don't even, that's go. the next show who cares about them <laughs> all right still ahead ready to upgrade to an iphone 14 no but if you are you may be in for what one firm calls an extreme wait time which these days is like 12 minutes steve kovac is next with the details one more thing before we go and that is ruining christmas Steve Kovac, you sat down and you go, a lot of people are going to have a miserable Christmas yeah. this year because of some Apple issues? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to play the Grinch for you, Brian. How about that, okay? okay? So, look, there are not going to be many iPhones under Christmas trees. This is because Chinese state media is reporting Foxconn needs to hire 100,000 more workers to get back to full production following those COVID lockdowns that began a couple weeks ago. This is the snarl Apple warned about. About a week and a half ago, COVID shutdown at this so-called iPhone city means they'll sell fewer iPhone 14 Pros expected. Now, here's why that's bad news for Apple. Apple is counting on selling more of those expensive pros to meet sales growth targets for the iPhone segment because unit sales are going to be relatively flat this year. And in fact, that's good because folks were choosing that more expensive pro phone over the cheaper ones. But now they have to wait well over a month if they order today makes it even more difficult, maybe even unlikely iPhone sales will hit the mark this quarter. Now, the good news for Apple, Apple also says demand is still strong for the 14 Pro. So it's possible sales will carry over into next year once Foxconn can catch up and start making it. By the way, Foxconn has not commented on these on these hiring targets. Shocking. Yes, exactly. But look, if you wanted to get one in time for Christmas, it's already too late, Brian. If you order a 14 Pro today, it doesn't come till December 28th. So three days later. Right. I mean, it's not the end of the world. That's uh, if you order today. Today. Not Black Friday. Right now. Today. But yeah. how about next year? Getting better, you said, That's early next expect, year expected? Unless there's another COVID shutdown, which we don't know. Now, we do know China's, you know, talking about easing back off those policies. Not, yeah. But it's not really happening. City yet. of Guangzhou, by the way, where they make a lot it's, of this that's, stuff. That's had, where it is. Yeah. Well, they have a major shutdown. In fact, they have rioting now because people are running yeah. out of food. That's a totally different issue. Uh, big issue there on the iPhone. Yeah. Now Christmas is terrible. Yeah. Steve Kovac. Christmas ruined. Sorry. Thank you, Ebenezer. It's <laughs> great. The gr- I, I prefer Grinch. And God bless us, everyone. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today.